to the Tennis IQ Podcast. I'm Brian Lomax. And I'm Josh Berger. And for today's episode, we would like to talk about the French Open, and uh, which just wrapped up this past weekend, uh, with Rafael Nadal winning the his 13th French Open title, which is just an astounding record. Um, we'll dive into that. And also, Iga Swiatek winning her first uh First French Open and first major title at 19 years old, um, which is coincidentally uh, the same age Nadal won his first French Open and his first major title. Um, and uh, they have really a lot, a lot in common. Um, although, uh, you know, this is Nadal's 20th uh, Grand Slam title, which ties Federer's record on the men's side and Schwiantek's first. Um, they really have quite a lot in common from, first of all, Schwiantek really idolizing Nadal um, growing up, but uh, really, I would say their their ability to really stay in the present moment and not get too caught up, too ahead of themselves, but really stay um, present with everything that's going on right now in the moment and what what's important now or what has to be done right now. Um, that was one of the things that, um, and this has been noted in articles, but really um, with uh, with Nadal, really his um, you know, and, and this is something that's really been a theme throughout his career, um, where he hasn't, he never gets too far ahead of himself, where if he's in a tournament, maybe it's the first or second round, even the quarters or semifinals, and they'll ask him about winning the tournament. Um, he says, you know, I have a very important match coming up in this round. Uh, I need to play my absolute best to give myself a chance. So he's very, always very focused on what's right ahead of him what is going on right now, rather than getting too carried away. With Schwiantek, it's really um, this commitment, and we'll, we'll dive in a little deeper here, um, into the mental game and uh, through her connection with her uh, traveling sports psychologist, um, Daria Abra, Abrahimovic. Am I pronouncing that, Am I pronouncing that right? Abrahamovich. Okay. So um, so that, that that's really that um, where I think we'd like to begin, sort of that um, that connection between the two of them on really being able to focus in on that present moment. Brian, what were, uh, what were some of your takeaways um, from the two of them, from the two uh, French Open champions on the men's yeah. one? Yeah, in terms of that connection, I think you're right, Josh, that um, what we see in Nadal is a guy who's very process-oriented. And while many people believe some of the things that he does are superstitions, he's He's actually pushed back on that and saying that, well, they're not superstitions because I do them all the time, whether I win or lose. Yep. So they're really, in effect, they're just parts of his process for him getting himself ready. So he has a specific way he handles changeovers, a specific way he handles in between points. Um, and I think many of us note and probably are, you know, in, in, in a way, revere Nadal's ability to play his best every single point to bring his best or at least his best effort every single point. And I think that that, when I think of him, I think of a relentless competitor. You're, you're very rarely going to get a free point where I think uh, a lot of times in tennis, you'll get, you'll get free points from, from your opponents, whether it's a lack of focus or whatever. But I think Nadal's ability to, uh, in a way, routinize what he does all the time helps him. To, to bring that level of focus. I think the other thing that I like about Nadal and how he approaches this, Josh, and you were saying, you know, when he's asked about winning the tournament or other matches, 
I think he displays the utmost respect for the person he's playing right now. Absolutely. And and so you'll you'll never hear Nadal look ahead because he he isn't saying to himself, "Well, I should win this match." That's in a way, a, especially at the pro level, somewhat disrespectful thing to say. He he understands that anybody can beat anybody, and he has lost to people who you would be surprised that he's lost to. Um, you know, especially maybe at Wimbledon, where you, players are often a little bit more vulnerable, uh, especially in those early rounds on the the greener grass. Um, and so he said something in one of the. Um, articles that was in the New York Times uh, over the weekend. And uh, it, it tells you a little bit about how he approaches matches. So he doesn't go in to a match with arrogance, thinking he's going to win and, and so forth. He said, for me, doubts are good because it means that you don't consider yourself too good. And so in a way, he's, I think he, what he's saying there is it's okay to go into a match not knowing if you're going to win or not. Um, because if you go into a match believing you're going to win or thinking you're going to win, you might not do everything you need to do to actually win. You might not prepare as well. You may overlook some things. You might make a judgment in even in the, in the warm-up, like so-and-so's makes a little few more errors over there. Next thing you know... Um, they're never missing that shot ever again when when the match starts. Um, so I think we can learn a lot from a, a guy like Nadal and how he approaches things, not only during the match, but even his approach to it with that utmost respect. And you mentioned, you used this phrase, he always talks about how he has to just give his best effort, try to play his best, etc. Those are the, the controllable aspects of things. And I think that's another thing that Perhaps is going to help us connect Sviantek and, and and Nadal a little bit better here because I know she does she does idolize him and I think she got to see him practice a couple times and, and that was special for her. Yeah, I saw that. Uh, I think it was a video of uh, Sviantek with a uh, taking a video of Nadal and there's you know her face was in it almost like a selfie or maybe somebody else had taken it. But um, to what to what you're saying, I think I think that's such an important point. This you know, this aspect of controlling the controllables and really and focusing on the process of doing things the right way, you know, in terms of your training, in terms of your mindset going into a match or into a tournament and not focusing so much on the result. I mean, if your focus is on winning the tournament, you could do everything right. You could play your best tennis. You could have, um, you know, be, be hitting the best shots. And when it all comes down to it, the ball could trickle off the net cord and you could lose. Um, or you could be playing great and you could get injured. Um, so instead, you know, really focusing on doing the right things and letting the results take care of themselves. This actually reminds me, Brian, a little bit of our conversation, um, in episode two with Brian Barker. And, uh, you know, if, if there's two players competing and it comes down to a tiebreaker, it comes down to the third set or fifth set. And one of them is really fo- just focused on doing their best on, you know, on that process of doing things the right way. And the other one is also focused, you know, on the process to an extent, but for them, they also really need a win. It's like, okay, I want to do things the right way, but I want to win. When it comes down to it, who's going to feel more pressure in that, um, in, at the end of the match? 
So, um, yeah, the, in terms of Nadal's um, mindset, and I think you even saw this at the end of the match um, in his post-match interview, you know, uh, it was a huge moment for him. You could arguably say one of his biggest wins of his career, maybe right up there maybe with number one, I mean, with that Federer, um, you know, when he first won Wimbledon over Federer, um, and he tied Federer's record of 20 Grand Slam uh, titles. And they asked him about it, and rather than being, you know, full of, full of joy or, you know, boastful and, or in any way, which I think would have been understandable. Um, certainly, uh, he's, you know, said, no, you know, this is not the time for me to think about this right now. I'm thinking about the fact that I just won this title. Maybe tomorrow I'll start to process it and think about, you know, what that, what that means. And, you know, at the end of, he also said later, maybe at the end of our careers, we can, you know, go back, go back to this and compare, but for right now, I'm, I'm focused on, you know, on this. So I, th- I think that just shows, and I think, honestly, that's one of the reasons he's been so successful, that process on the day-to-day, that process on whatever match is right in front of him and not taking anything for granted, not overlooking anything, and just doing everything that has to be done um, right now. And I think you see that also in you know con- countless matches where he's started off slow. Maybe he's been off his game. We talked about one of our previous episodes, I think the, the 2018 U.S. Open against Dominic Team, where he lost the first set six love. A lot of people would say, "Hey, just not not my match, not my match today, not not my day." But fought, fought back, took it one point at a time, and figured out a way. And I think really that commitment to the process and that commitment to doing things the right way, point by point, and really day by day, is um, what I think of when I think of Rafael Nadal and why he's why he's had such an outstanding career. Yeah, and I think um, you brought up a, a point about how perhaps a muted celebration to a certain extent, even though yep. it's a huge, huge accomplishment. And I think it, within that, there's a recognition of what's going on in the world. Yep, absolutely. And um, that perhaps this is not the time, uh, given all the suffering happening in the world, for him to be you know overly jubilant. And uh, you don't necessarily have to agree with that, but I, you have to respect his perspective on that. I think early in the tournament, he was asked about the the environment and he said, uh, quoting from a, a New York Times article, the feeling is more sad than usual, but maybe that's what it needs to feel like. It needs to be sad. Many people in the world are, are suffering. And um, I think, you know, the players by playing can bring some joy to people the few people who got to be in the stands, but the many people watching on television and so forth. Um, but it does feel, even the even when we watch the U.S. Open, it's it's different. It's a different world, and we're all happy to watch tennis, but um, I think just the way Rafa articulated these points was helpful. And yep. it was good to recognize, yeah, we're here, but guess what? There's still a lot of suffering going on in the world. So let's keep this, let's keep this in, in perspective. So, um, well, let's talk a little bit about the match itself and maybe just the journeys of the two players, because I thought one of the big talking points coming into Roland Garros was it's going to be colder. They're using Wilson balls. Rafa is going to have a hard time. Yes, and yes. his ball won't bounce up as high. The clay is going to be heavier, etc. And I was like, "All right, that makes sense." 
And then maybe about a week into the tournament, Josh, I started to think, hmm, maybe we should have asked about how the cold might affect the other players. <laughs> yeah. Because a lot of those other players were wearing, um, you know, sort of warmer clothing. You, We both grew up in the Northeast. Playing outside in the cold weather, it's really hard to hit the ball hard. Everybody's ball is going to decrease in velocity. Uh, and so forth. So I, I wondered uh, as the tournament went on, like maybe we were a little overly concerned with how the weather might affect Nadal because he seemed to come through it pretty well. Both he and Sviantec won the titles without dropping a set. Mm-hmm. To me, yeah, I, I think that's that's a very good point. And to me, it actually reminds me of conversations I've had with um, with tennis players, and they tell me, "Oh, I hate playing when it's when it's really windy." Or when uh, when it's really cold, or when you know when the sun's in my eyes, or whatever it is, which are all you know, it's legitimate. That does certainly make things more difficult. But to recognize that there's there's two players on the court, or you know, four if you're playing doubles, obviously. But the other player, the player on the other side of the net, is dealing with the exact same thing. Yeah. So re- keeping that in mind, and even if you're getting frustrated because you're not playing at your best, remembering that. The other player has to deal with the exact same thing. So it's it's oftentimes a matter of who's going to handle the conditions better and who's just going to have a better mindset and outlook uh, about facing these conditions. And uh, it's interesting you brought up the balls and there was a lot of um, articles and buzz going into the tournament that Nadal was not happy about the the switch from the Babolat to the Wilson balls. Um, not just because he plays with Babolat, um, but really because yeah, the Babylon balls are much lighter, right? Right. Much lighter, much, lighter. much higher bouncing. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And, um, but, uh, I, I believe right before the tournament, there was a quote and it could have been maybe in the first round or two, but where he said, you know, uh, no, no more, no excuses or like, you know, I'm just going to go out there and, you know, leave, leave it out there and, yeah, and do the best I can with what exactly. the conditions are. Yeah, yep, exactly. And, uh, yeah, I, th- I think that's what you saw. I mean, he, what I saw is him, rather than staying really far back behind the baseline, as maybe we've seen in the past, him playing closer to the baseline, and maybe yeah. it, you know, his ball wasn't bouncing high up to Djokovic's backhand as maybe he would like, or as it has in the past, but he was using um, other tactics, maybe playing more aggressively, which, which I, I thought really, really helped him throughout that match. Yeah. I thought there were a couple times, though, he actually took his two-hander and almost tried to just loop it up yes, a couple yes, of times just to get more height on that ball. Mm-hmm. So um, it's good to see him thinking in in that way. Yeah, and I, I think you're right. I think it's perfectly okay to express perhaps some dissatisfaction. Well, there's nothing you can do about the weather, but the ball's and we don't know exactly why they were changed. There's been some speculation, maybe money contract that certainly helped the French tennis federation. Um, so it's fine to, I think, express some dissatisfaction, but at a certain point, you just have to accept it and go with it. And, and he obviously did that. Yeah. Um, and, and who knows, maybe given the weather and the balls, maybe that was actually a good combo for him. Cause he seemed to handle it as well as anybody. I think, I think the results the results would definitely indicate that. Yeah, he played. Yeah, I. I mean, to to me, this is. I, I don't think I've ever seen him play better, frankly. Yeah. Uh, well, he has won the tournament a few times. 
without dropping a set. <laughs> um, <Yeah. laughs> and um, so he's, he's, this is not a place where he is uh, necessarily ever played badly. Um, but, you know, on the other side, Djokovic hadn't lost a, a match that he completed this year. Um, had been playing well, won Rome, um, but had, uh, I think, had some struggles in this tournament. And, um, you know, I was speculating on this earlier. There's no real confirmation of this, but in, in some of his prior matches, he had seemingly had some issues with his neck and his shoulders, and he had actually been on court more than Nadal. And part of winning a Grand Slam, I think, is trying to find that path of least resistance. Mm-hmm. Now, these two guys are supremely conditioned athletes, and I don't know that that made a difference in this match. Um, that might make a difference at a, maybe a lower level, uh, but these guys are in such good shape. Um, but, you know, what did you see from Djokovic in this match? Did you see anything mentally that you think could have done better, or did you notice anything perhaps mentally, emotionally that held him back? Um, I mean, I think he got off to a slow start. Um, that's, I mean, the first set was six love and he just, he seemed a little bit edgy out there. He seemed, um, mentally edgy, which I think led to, um, some, his, his game being pretty up and down. Um, I think you saw that a little bit in the third set where he broke back to get, um, you know, to, to get back on serve. And then from that point, I think a game or two, I think, you know, a couple games later, um, just played a, a, you know, less, less tight, a little bit sloppy service game. And then um, Nadal served it out with, with some ease. So I think that mental, you know, him being a little mentally edgy sort of came through in terms of his game. Um, that was one thing that I saw. Again, you, you brought up the fact that he had been on court more. Nadal hadn't dropped a set the entire tournament, had been, uh, you know, winning with, with relative ease. And Djokovic had just, uh, I think it was, he won a four-setter in the quarterfinals and five-setter where he was up two sets to love and then had to, you know, be on court a lot longer um, when, when Sissipas came back to win that fourth and fifth set, yeah. um, which I'm, you know, and, and by the time you get to that, seventh match of the tournament and best of five sets, your body has taken a toll. So you want to alleviate the extra sets and extra time on court as much as possible. Um, so yeah, I, th- I think it was a combination of sort of getting off to a slower start facing the, the daunting task of Rafael Nadal at the French, which is maybe the toughest task in tennis. I think we could say without, um, you know, too much argument. Um, yeah, right. I'd agree. If not the most, definitely right up there. I mean, he, his record now is 102 lifetime, which is just, I mean, there's not too much to say about that yeah. um, with half of those losses coming to Djokovic. But um, <laughs> yeah, and, he, and even in a year that he was not the same Rafael Nadal, he was coming yeah. off injury, he was really struggling. And you could even say the time he lost to Soderling, uh, there was something going on because he didn't play the rest of the year. It's true. After that, is- that tournament. So, um, you know, when he's 100%, maybe it's impossible to beat. <laughs> I don't know. But, um, yeah, I thought Djokovic's energy, especially in the first couple sets, he just seemed really flat. Yep. Which I agree. 
part of the reason I was speculating maybe injury just because it was almost like he was conservative and protecting and we don't normally see that from him, especially on a big occasion. Um, and and then the beginning of the third, he started to, I think, his body warmed up a little bit. He started hitting the ball harder. His serve was better. Um, his energy still wasn't great at the beginning of the third, but it got – it improved. Um, but like we saw even with uh, his incident at the U.S. Open, we saw some mental inconsistency there yeah. um, where – He'd hit a great shot, he'd be pumped, and then he'd make a mistake, and he would be down on himself and yelling and, and, and these things. And so the judgment of point to point was just too much. And and I think that that, as we've mentioned in past episodes, that will eventually lead to some inconsistency in your game. And so I think near the end of that set, we saw a brilliant point followed by a first ball error in the net. Which is, again, just not like him, but so what's the root of it? There's probably some sort of mental inconsistency, some energy, some frustration with how he's playing. And uh, yeah, he just, he just couldn't get it together on that, on that day. Absolutely. No, it almost looked to a, to a certain extent like he felt like he was running out of options. Like he yeah. didn't know what to do. He he. You know, went in with a certain game plan. Looked like he started. Nadal won that first set six love. It looked like he started going for a little bit more, and then he was missing more. He was going to that drop shot, which he's been going to a lot and and had some success with. But Nadal is, you know, was running them down and just really handling those drop shots. And some of them, Djokovic just made errors on, which you don't normally see him do. Yep. Yep. So, yeah, to, to me, it seemed like that some of that frustration was from that slow start from those first couple sets and maybe, you know, feeling like there's not much he could do or that he wasn't able to bring out his best game, but also maybe feeling like he was running out of options. Yeah, yeah. And then I, I think also we've often talked about the dynamic between two players. And in that, you know, later half of that second set, I felt like Nadal got a little bit nervy. The ball started to be a little bit shorter, allowing Djokovic to play a little bit better. Um, but then, like he often does, he recovered and yep. reasserted himself. He did the same against Schwartzman in um, in the in the semifinal, where he um, he lost his, a break that he had in the third, and eventually closed out the the tiebreak seven zero. Um, and you know, once he got that break back against Djokovic, like you said earlier served out the match pretty um, pretty easily. Um, and so I bring that up only because I, I think that's a frequent pattern with Nadal. He often will get a little bit nervy, but he bounces back from it. Um, yeah. And, 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 you know, and so it does go both ways. He got nervy, Djokovic played better, and then um, it's almost like we're, in a way, measuring the mental strength of the two players at – different points it'd be great to be sort of have like a some sort of like meter where we could see like where they are like mental toughness wise and how it's going up and down and 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 how that plays out into their game so we don't have any sort of technology to to do that yet but that's kind of how like i want i like to watch a match is to be thinking about where somebody is sort of mentally on say a you know like a zero to 100 scale and 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 then how is that matching up with how they're playing and then comparing those two things to the 
to, you know, or comparing the opponents in that and how they're relative to each other. Um, so I just thought that was an interesting thing is, is we often see it with Rafa, but um, the thing that I like is, he, you know, he comes back and reasserts himself. Time and time again from whatever's going on, whether it's tightness in the third set, I think throughout his career, it his resilience from, you know, as, as you said, he's had some early round losses at, at tournaments like Wimbledon, or he's had these injuries, probably more injuries than, than anybody. Right. And or comebacks than anybody. <laughs> he's reasserted himself and come back and come to the top of the sport. Um, so I, I think when I think of him, I think of, of the comeback of that resilience, um, whether it's in a match, whether it's, in a season, whether it's just really his career as a whole. Yeah. Yeah. So we're just lucky to be able to be experiencing the career of all these guys. It is, it is a golden age of tennis. Let's hope that he can win as many French opens as he wants. As long as he, you know, wants to keep playing. I think, I think they'll welcome him back to, to Paris. I've seen, I've seen these pictures of him, you know, or, they're, they're jokes, but memes of him, you know, 30 years from now or 40 years from now with great <laughs> and, you know, winning the 2064, uh, right. Heroes. Um, but no, I think, uh, you know, I think also, you know, we talked about the injuries and he plays a very physical style of tennis yeah. and earlier in his career, a lot of people speculated that because of all these injuries, because he plays so physical running down shots and every corner of the court, he would, be retired at a, a relatively early age. So I think, you know, nobody would have expected that at the age of 34, he would still be at the top of the game at number two in the world, having won his 20th major and 13th Roland Garros. Yeah. So I, th- I think he actually expressed some surprise that he's lasted this long. I think yep. he, from reading some interviews in the past, expected his career to not be, to be this long. So, um, you know, kudos to him for the, the training and the process and, and, and so forth. Um, how about we move now to the women's match? So Sviantek yep. versus Sophia Kennan. Kennan um, having a great year, aside from the final at in Paris. Her only loss had been um, – only couple losses had been U.S. Open. And then I think she also lost to um, Victoria Azarenka in, uh, in Rome kind of badly. Um, but, you know, came into this um, match also with a lot of time on court, some injury, her leg um, kind of strapped up. How would you um, rate this matchup? What did you notice uh, from each player from a mental perspective? Um, well, the two of us were talking a little bit off air that um, Sviantek is a little bit, and, and maybe this has to do with her idolizing Nadal, that in between points, you don't necessarily know whether she won the previous point. She's has it seems to have a pretty you know clear routine in that she win or lose that next point, she is, has the ability to reset and to move on to that next point with you know full intensity and uh, see, seeming like it seems like she has a great mindset going into each point. Um, where it's that consistency that we as sports psychology professionals definitely look for in terms of performing your best at a, you know, day in, day out. Um, where with Kenan, um, she certainly gets very fired up 
and very intense when, when things are going well. Um, and there's certainly, to, in my mind, certainly nothing wrong with that. Um, to me, what gets her into a little bit of trouble is when things aren't going well and that routine goes away or there, there isn't much of a routine there. She just sort of goes up to the line and, you know, she shows her frustrations um, a lot more uh, in between points. You generally have a pretty clear idea who won the previous point just based on her body language, which um, is not, not, I would say not ideal. Yeah. Uh, I think she, Josh, even gets mad sometimes when she wins points. Yeah. It doesn't it's, look it's great. Frustration from the yeah. previous points, from the, the uh, beginning of the set or beginning of the match. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah I'd agree with you on the, on her. Um, uh, I think, she has a lot of strengths from a mental perspective, right? She's very determined. She's a great yeah. fighter. Um, not the type of person who's ever going to give up. Um, but I feel like she's so good as she is. How good could she be if she had a traveling sports psych who helped her to develop a routine so that she could be really 100% in on every point? who had perhaps a better way of handling, like we don't want to lose the good stuff that she has, that determination, that fight, but could we channel it into more productive things that, um, that, that you know, aren't going to get her in trouble? Because I think there were points in that final where she you know, rushed through the in-between piece, just stepped up to the line, and would, and would lose the next point. There was one... Uh, moment at the end, I think it was in the last game of the first set, where she won this incredible point, really, really long rally, and just screamed, you know, like, come on, and really put a lot into it, and then lost the next two points quickly. And it, it was almost like a waste of energy. It, it's that thing that we've talked about in the past of being judgmental between points. Both ways can be a problem. Yep. Because, yeah, she celebrated um, getting to Deuce as if she had won the match. She hadn't won anything. Still in the game. <laughs> and that can be, uh, it can be really difficult to be that high without coming down this low. Um, and with her, I think, certainly in the second set, I thought the, the injury to the leg became more problematic. You know, she called for the trainer. I thought her um, her ability to move was was compromised and that may have led to additional frustration. But good for her for uh, sticking it out. And uh, not everybody's done that. Um, but I don't think she's the type of person who would, uh, who would quit. So I think there's a lot of good stuff about her, Josh. I just, there are times where people are able to get to a high level with what they have but it might not be as high as they could go, might not be optimal what they're doing. And that's what really strikes me about her is I, I feel like she could actually be better, even though she's number four in the world. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, both she is still very, you know, very young and, yeah. you know, has has definitely time on her side. But uh, no, I, I agree. I get the same sense. I get the sense that, you know, certainly tightening up that routine in between points, maybe finding a more productive way to channel some of that um, yeah. negative energy right. um, could, could definitely go a long way in terms of the consistency of her results. I mean, um, you mentioned uh, Rome, 
the, the, the tournament um, immediately before the French Open. And she she lost six love, six love, which is, you know, she was, you know, not at her best. Um, and I think it's, it says something about her that, you know, after a loss like that, was able to, to get to the finals of the French Open immediately following that. So I think that in itself is very impressive and shows what a fighter she really is. Um, but I think it, it also speaks to that inconsistency that has shown up in her game and that, you know, maybe a, a clearer focus on that time in between points and that um, management of emotions could could help with, with that consistency. Yeah. I think the next couple of years are going to be very telling. We're yep. obviously speculating about a lot of different things. Many oh. things could change. Many things could stay the same. Um, but I, I would suspect that if she could address this part of her game, we would see more consistency in her performances. And I think now that you know we have an example like uh, Igish Fiontech working with uh, a sports psychologist who is traveling with her, obviously knows her very well. Um, they're close. Um, you know, I think one of the things that I, I liked about what um, Sviantek, uh was saying was um, she said it had this quote, and you, you had sent me this article, WTA um, uh, website, said, she just made me smarter. I know more about sports and I know more about psychology and I can understand my own feelings and I can say them out loud. She just makes my confidence level higher. Wouldn't it be great for every player to be able to say that and to be comfortable with that? Um, there's some, uh, you know, people commenting in the news that perhaps because she's a Gen Z, she's a little bit more comfortable with embracing this, and that's that that could absolutely be true. I think as sports psychology starts to become more and more mainstream, I think we're going to see more sports psychology professionals either traveling or being more present as a part of an entourage uh, with, with players, um, which I think is fantastic. So I think that this um, right now, maybe this is part of her sort of secret sauce that other players may start to take advantage of. You know, what do you think of that, Josh? Yeah, yeah, I, I definitely see this as a, a big time trend um, going forward. Um, I mean, th th this th wasn't the first example of this. Um, I remember last year at the U.S. Open, Medvedev had um, his sports psychology professional present um, up in his box. Um, and uh, for, for those who remember last year's U.S. Open and his sort of journey um, through that U.S. Open, the, the highs and lows all the way to the final, um, it, it, it just showed that, that he had made a lot of maturity on the mental aspect of the game in the, the months leading up to that tournament. Um, but yeah, I, I definitely see this as a trend in the lessening of the stigma of, of the stigma, um, where in the past, maybe in past decades, you know, you mention a psychologist, you mention, oh, I'm seeing a um, sports psychology professional, sports psychology coach, and people would say, oh, you, th this person, this person has some some problems. This person, you know, th they're crazy, um, or they or they have, you know, th they're not tough. They're not mentally tough. They they need help in that area where I think now we're, we're getting to the point and, you know, I think, um, culture is changing. You mentioned Gen Z, or I think, you know, we're, we're getting to this point where, um, number one, mental health is being more publicly talked about. Um, 
which which I think is is great. It's it's certainly something that that should be addressed. But I think um, within this realm, it, it it seems at least from everything I've read, this is um, certainly more on the performance enhancement side, on the mental skills side. And I think more and more athletes at the highest levels, as well as um, recreational levels, junior levels, are recognizing that they spend a lot of time training their bodies. Yeah. They spend a lot of time, you know, perfecting their technique. And maybe they're not dedicating enough time or any time to the mental side of the game. And I think you see a couple other examples um, across sport um, is LeBron James now has a, uh, a, a big sponsorship with the app Calm. And you, you'll see that's right up there with Headspace with the biggest um, mindfulness meditation apps. Um, Michael Phelps also has spoken very openly about mental health. Um, in Tom Brady's book, uh, TB12 Method, he talks a lot about the mental aspect of the game, also Mamba Mentality um, from Kobe Bryant. So I think when some of the top athletes in the world are, are talking openly about the mental, mental health, but also really mental performance within sports, it sets a, a real precedent um, that this is something that definitely has to be taken advantage of if you want to be at your best. And to answer your question, Brian, I think this is definitely a trend that we will see more of that that will um, a sports psychology professional will not just be part of a, a, the team, but will be more and more a part of the traveling team. And they will be um, somebody that you see tournament to tournament as really a, a key support piece for, for players going forward. And I think we're going to see it across sports, as you were just mentioning. There are many examples of this. And uh, I think um, a few years ago, I was working with a Division One volleyball team, and, and the coach actually had me on the bench during games. And yep. her precedent for doing that was that at UCLA, um, the vo men's volleyball coach used one of his assistant coach spots to hire a sports psychologist. And she would be on the bench, and many people were wondering what he was doing. Like, why? Why would you give that away to somebody who's not a volleyball person? Um, but in many ways, he's probably ahead of his time. So I think we'll we'll see more of that. One of the things I want to talk about is something that um, Shviontek and her sports psych coach talk about. I believe it's a quote from. Um, the skier, Michaela Schifrin, and it became, I think, more or less a mantra for the two of them. And I think we can really dive into this because I think this would actually help a lot of players. And the, the, it's just six words, but there's so much in here. Keep expectations low and standards high. So when you hear that, Josh, and maybe we can break it into the two halves. Yeah. You know, keep expectations low and standards high. What, what, Keep expectations low. What it, what what does that say to you? To me, it, it really says don't take anything for granted. To me, it says don't go into a match, don't go into a tournament expecting to win, because then you're going to overlook the opponent, you're going to overlook the circumstances, and you're not going to. Most likely, you won't be as mentally sharp as you would be um, w without any sort of expectations. Um, so, so to me, it says, you know, make, make sure that you have everything in order, um, and that you're not taking anything for granted, um, and that you're not expecting things to be easy 
that you're expecting it'll be challenging, but maybe that you expect that you have the tools to figure it out, but that, that you're not um, expecting success or expecting to win. That's, yeah. I think along with that, and I hear this a lot in junior tennis, is don't expect to play well. Yep. Because very often I hear, well, I didn't, I wasn't playing well. As if that's like a legitimate excuse to stop trying. Absolutely. And um, so, and this is, as we've mentioned many times, this is a combat sport. There's someone on the other side of the net who is very invested in you not playing well. They're going to do everything they can to not let you play well. And sometimes that works. And I think, I don't know what, I mean, uh, what percentage of the time that we actually do play well is, uh, I, I, you know, I think um, it's not a hundred though. And so we can't go into every match thinking, well, I'm going to play well, I'm going to win. And so I think the idea of keeping our expectations low, is keeping it realistic, yep. being respectful. Um, but if we go back to our second episode with Brian Barker, it's a great strategy to keep pressure off. It's a great strategy to, um, try to be loose and calm out there because I think another thing that comes up as expectations is not just your own personal expectations, but sometimes we create stories in our heads that everybody around us expects us to win. And then oftentimes this is not true. Sure. They either not paying attention or they maybe don't expect you to win at all. Um, so, think we have to be careful about the stories that we tell ourselves. And if we can keep our expectations low, um, then we can reduce pressure. And then when we've reduced pressure, then I think we can move to the second half of this standards high. What do you, when, when you hear that, Josh, what, what comes to mind? To me, what comes to mind is not, not letting yourself off the hook. Ex- expect. So not ex- well, expecting, of yourself, certain things. So not expecting the win, not expecting that things are going to be easy as we talked about, but having certain expectations of yourself, of the way that you compete day in, day out, of your nutrition, of your sleep and setting a high bar in terms of those standards, in terms of self expectations on those things that you can control and making sure that you're you're doing all those things on the checklist to give yourself the best possible chance on a given day. So um, having a high standards because you know that it won't be easy. And to me, this, this sort of merge of the two of them together, you know, it's going to be tough. You know, it's going to take your best tennis to, to do well. Um, and remembering that and not, also, you know, not taking anything for granted so that you can um, play at, be at the highest level that you can possibly be at. So having, you know, knowing what it takes and then setting up goals and setting up benchmarks for yourself to reach that point um, through those high standards. So having, you know, knowing that, let's say you want to, you're a high school athlete, let's say, and you have a goal of being a collegiate athlete. And you know that it's not going to be an easy process. And in order to get there, certain things have to take place in terms of improvements to your game, in terms of maybe improvements to your mindset, 
in terms of maybe physical improvements, training improvements, um, taking care of certain injuries, whatever it may be. So keeping those very clearly in mind, maybe setting up reminder systems for yourself, as we've talked about in the past, um, so that you can do everything in your control to give yourself the best chance to perform at a high level. Yeah, I think that um, you're right on. I think standards high to me is much more about knowing what all the little things are that go into performance and doing them well. And there are the controllables and you named some things, you know, diet, sleep. But I think there are also even some basic things like effort, yep. attitude. Um, and the more that one knows about the process, because when I look at this um, this mantra, these six words, I, I see result-oriented thinking, keeping that, minimizing that, and emphasizing process-oriented thinking. And the more that a player knows about the process, knows his or her own, whether it's a formula or recipe, whatever word you want to use, that creates great performance, knowing what that is, and then just focusing on all those little things and just trying to be excellent at that. Um, you know, you could even look at it from a, a senior tennis player, you know, because we, um, we definitely have some people out there listening who are senior players. I'm a senior player. Uh, you know, there may be things I need to do that perhaps a teenager wouldn't. So, for example, coming back from an Achilles heel injury, every night I have to put my foot in a bucket of ice. I don't think that many younger players are doing something like that, but that's part of my process is to keep myself out on the court. I have to make sure I'm, I'm tending to these injuries that are coming up now in my 50s versus before. Um, so I think at every level of the game, if we can focus on those little controllables, we're likely to create a, a better performance. We're likely to compete better. And that's where I think consistency comes in. Um, you mentioned a checklist. I love that. I love that, you know, that if people have a preparation checklist, they go through. Um, but if you're always focusing on those controllables and learning more about them and getting better at that, that's what's going to lead to more consistency in your, in your performances. And I think that's kind of where we were getting to a little bit with um, Sophia Kennan. Can she learn a little bit more about the process of great tennis and bring some more consistency to routines and, and, and so forth, some of those controllables. Um, so I just thought that was really an excellent way to look at tennis going into every match because I also think we could bring it back to Rafa. It kind of comes back to his idea of respect for the player. Yeah. Keeping expectations low, keeping it real. I don't think I'm going to win or I'm not going to be arrogant to say I'm going to win. I've got to do these other things really well to give myself a chance to win. And he obviously does that. And the more and all the players that you name, they're other sports. What are they really good at? They're really good at doing those little things that put them in a position where they could win. There are no guarantees, of course. But that's what we're always looking to do is get ourselves in a position where we have the opportunity for victory. It may not come. Sometimes luck is against us or, or whatever. Um, but if you are doing, you know, you're keeping your standards high on those controllables, you're going to put yourself in that position more and more often. Yep. You give yourself the best possible chance. Yep. There's no guarantees. The other person could be having the best day of their life in terms of their game. 
and it's going to be tough to, to beat that particular player that day. Um, so, or, you know, luck could be working against you. Your body could be working against you in terms of an injury. And there, these are the things that are out of your control. These are things, the, the weather could be working against you and the, the, it could start downpouring and there could be, you know, no way to finish the match on, on that particular day. Um, whatever, whatever the, the case, um, there are plenty of things out of your control that would be, you know, m- many people would choose to focus on. But I, I think what, what we're both getting at is um, one of the ways to be a great competitor is to, to choose to really try to focus on those things within your control. And again, often easier said than done, but when you find yourself thinking about these, uh, these outside factors or distracted by them, finding a way to redirect that thought onto something more within your control. Maybe it's a keyword that you have. Uh, maybe it's some sort of routine. Maybe it's some sort of way that you get back into focusing on these things that are within your control that ultimately do have an impact on your performance. And even if it doesn't guarantee a result, which it doesn't, it gives you the best possible chance. Yeah. And I think one of the challenges for Sviantec is going to be, all right, now she's a little bit more in the limelight. She just won a Grand Slam title. There's going to be a lot more publicity coming her way. But you would have to say, you know, with a sports psych person on her team, she's probably in a better position to handle it than most 19-year-olds. And so I think it will be interesting to see how she – I don't know what – we don't know what's going to happen with the rest of the year in terms of uh, events or coming into Australia. Uh, So we'll have to see. Um, But it will be very interesting to see how she shows up at her next event and handles now being the French Open champion. Yeah, and I think we've seen in past years – Especially, you know, on the on the men's side, there's been a lot of dominance, right? The, the big three, Federer, Nadal, and Djokovic, have won almost every major for the yeah. last 15 or so years. And it's kind it, of funny. They were talking about, you know, team winning one, and it basically took Djokovic getting defaulted for something, Federer and Nadal not being there, yeah. others not being there, for actually somebody to break the, the monopoly. And a global pandemic. Yeah, right. <laughs> so, so, no, I think... Given that um, dominance that we've seen on the men's side, on the women's side, obviously Serena Williams has been the most successful player of this generation, um, clearly. Um, But in in the recent years, at least in the past few years, we've seen a number of examples of players who have broken through and have won a major, but maybe their bodies have let them down. Maybe their, their games just haven't been able to rise to that same level. Um, so I think it will be very interesting to see if uh, Sviantec can uh, main, maintain that, that level that, that she displayed over those last two weeks. And I, I, I agree that, you know, having a sports psychology professional um, traveling with her um, will, will definitely help her handle some of that additional pressure. I mean, she'll, she'll be in the limelight more. She'll have the target on her back. Um, she's not going to be able to sort of slide through unnoticed anymore, certainly. So I think having somebody with her to um, help her handle those ups and downs and highs and lows that, that are inevitable in any player's career is, is a huge advantage. And as we, we said earlier, I think is, 
is a trend that we expect to to certainly continue and to to grow in years to come. Yeah, yeah. The challenge will be keeping expectations low. Now that from the outside expectations will rise. Yep. Yep. And I think how do you, how do you balance that? And I think she can learn from her idol. Yes. Rafael, Rafael Nadal. And if you know reporters might be asking her, you know, let's say leading up to the Australian Open. Um, and this obviously assumes that um, that will take place and she'll be there and all these things, which as, as 2020 has showed us, there are no, there's nothing we can take for granted in terms of that because we sort of have to take things a day at a time um, because there, there's no guarantees. Um, but, you know, if she gets, if she were to be asked about winning the Australian Open, let's say, or how she, um, or, or her um, chances of, of doing well in the tournament, um, trying to focus on that process and focus on doing the little things right and focus on making sure that she has everything in place to perform at a high level rather than getting caught up in these new expectations of herself that maybe others and outsiders have placed on her or expect of her. Yeah. Well, I think that's a good place to end, Josh. So um, that's our that's our show for today. Um, for more on some of the topics that we talked about, uh, check out the show notes, and we'll put in some of the links to the articles that we referenced. So I think there's some really good reading, both about uh, Sviantek, Nadal, Djokovic, Kennan. Um, if you have any feedbacks or questions for us, please email us at tennisiqpodcast at gmail.com. You can also use the Twitter hashtag tennisiq. Um, Additionally, please subscribe to the show on your platform of choice. We're also publishing our videos on our YouTube channel, so you can check those out as well. (laughs) Josh likes to wave. Uh, And then uh, we'll be uh, talking to you very soon in our next episode. Thank you very much. 